It is a great privilege to be here and to be able to preach uh, for your pastor. Uh, as a pastor, I know sometimes that's kind of scary when uh, a guest comes through and you ask them to speak and you've never heard them before. You're sometimes not sure what they're going to say. So uh, I take this privilege with uh, you know, great seriousness and uh, the stewardship of of uh, what is called the sacred est is a precious thing. So thank you, sir, for allowing me to do that. If you take your Bibles and open up to the book of Genesis, chapter 19 is where we'll be. And while you're turning, I'll just tell you a little bit about, about me. I pastor the First Baptist Church in Laurel, Montana, in America. And uh, that's a long ways from here. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm if I remember correctly, uh, your pastor is going to be in uh, Wisconsin preaching at the Holiness Conference. To get to where I'm at, you've got to go west about another thousand miles. So it's a long ways away. Uh, but we are pleased to be here, and Brother Trout and I have had a very good trip and been able to meet uh, other pastors, and I think that's been a, a great blessing. I was encouraged when I saw the banners, uh, Colossians 1.27, in our church Every year I sort of uh, wait upon the Lord to give us a theme for the year, what it is he wants us to emphasize. And this year we're also in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, and verse 10, where it says we are complete in him. And how wonderful that Christ provides all that we need. Now he doesn't go down and buy my groceries, but he does provide so that I can get my groceries. So yes, the physical things, but most importantly, he provides for my soul. And gives me a relationship with the Heavenly Father and uh, the hope of heaven and all the more important things uh, that give meaning to the mundane things. And so I'm so thankful for that. We're focusing on Christ in our church because last year our emphasis was on prayer. Cry unto the Lord. And uh, as I got to the end of the year and was asking the Lord to sort of give me some direction uh, for uh, 2000, yeah, 2013, it just seemed uh, logical if we talked about prayer and the importance of prayer that it would lead us to think about Christ who gives us access to the throne. Uh, and so uh, we're trusting this year in our congregation as we learn more about our Savior and uh, he's preached and taught about that it will just draw us even closer to him. So tonight, I want to share something with you that uh, providentially I also shared in our church on a Wednesday night. Uh, in the midst of all those studies and preachings on prayer, uh, one that sort of spoke to me personally, and I trust will be a, a blessing to you and an encouragement. Genesis chapter 19, verse 27 says, And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and beheld. And lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in the which Lot dwelt. Let's look to the Lord, shall we? Father, I pray and ask you to help tonight. Uh, may our hearts be very sensitive to the moving of your Spirit as you seek to speak to each of us, not, Father, certainly not me speaking to those who are gathered, but you speaking to us. We need to hear from you. Lord, I pray you'd give me clear thought and clear speech that uh, your message might not be hindered in any way. And we would be desirous to hear and respond to what it is you have for us. Guide and direct now, please, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Prayer is a wonderful thing. And there's a fella years ago, would have been in the, oh, I believe it would have been the 20s and the 30s of the last century, his name was Victor Plymar. He was a pioneer missionary to Tibet. When Tibet was still Tibet and not just a chunk of China. 
And uh, very few uh, missionaries had gone there with the gospel, and the Lord burdened that man. And so he went there and went through some amazing things as he traveled around from little sort of Tibetan hut to hut to hut as he would seek to share the gospel. And it was difficult to learn the language, and the culture was so vastly different from anything he had experienced before. Um, But in all of those things that he was doing, the Lord worked in in amazing ways in reference to prayer. And in his biography, he writes about two specific incidents I want to share with you to kind of lead us into thinking about this wonderful subject of prayer. He had been traveling from village to village and had been apprehended, I guess would be the word, by the local village They weren't really police. They weren't really soldiers. They were whatever the folks in Tibet that kind of traveled around would call them. And they took him before the local chieftain. And uh, he was going to be tried and executed, actually, uh, because missionaries were not allowed. He was leading people away from Buddhism, and that was a great offense. And he was a Christian and didn't have permission from the Dalai Lama to be there, and on and on it went. And there he was in this big, smoky, sort of dim tent on the inside where this court of the local chieftain or king or whatever his title was. And he was just about to have the axe come down and behead him. And in ran a messenger into the tent and said, Stop, I have a message from the Dalai Lama. You are not to hurt this man. And just in the nick of time, He was spared uh, dying, being martyred basically for the Lord right there in Tibet. As time went on, he came back uh, to uh, the States uh, on a furlough and was at a church reporting, telling them about the mission and so forth. And one lady came up to him and said, Brother Plymar, what happened to you on this particular day, on this particular hour? I was in bed And the Lord woke me up out of my sleep and impressed upon me to get upon my knees and to pray for you. We had not heard from you for years. We weren't sure if you were even still alive. But it was so heavy upon my heart, I got up and I prayed for you. And he began to think through the calendar and the change of time zones and all of those things. And it was the very moment the axe was about to fall. And God miraculously sent a messenger and stopped and spared his life. He went back to Tibet. They went through several very difficult times in Tibet, the Boxer Rebellion, the communists eventually came into China, and he had to escape for his life over the Himalayan mountains on foot, over those mountains down into India. And in that journey... As he was walking across the mountains in the wintertime, which is not very safe to do. Uh, I think I saw on the news while we've been here a a story about a a lady in Scotland who fell in some some kind of a crevice in the mountains and just about froze to death. Uh, So that would be very dangerous. As he was going across the mountains, it was so bitterly cold, his feet froze solid. Which, as you can imagine he would lose his feet. They would ha- if, if he survived this journey, he would have to have his feet amputated. But back uh, in the States, once again, uh, someone was impressed to pray for Brother Plymar. And in the middle of the night, once again, they were woken up out of, the, out of a dead sleep to wake up and to pray. And she argued with the Lord. She said, why would I pray for Brother Plymar? He's dead. We have heard that he's dead. He's not even alive. Why would I pray for a dead man's feet? It just astounded her that God would impress that. But she got, it was so heavy, she got up once again through the urging of the Holy Spirit, and she prayed for him. She prayed for his feet specifically. Well, Brother Plymar survived the journey over the mountains, made it to India, eventually came back to America, was reporting to that church, and same thing, she came and questioned him, and, and it was... Once again, the very time that his feet were frozen, that she got up and prayed. And he didn't lose even a toe. Not even a toe. Prayer 
as I'm sure you've heard and read in, your, in God's Word and sermons and teaching and so forth, prayer is a great, um, well, I, I like to say it is both a privilege. We get to go to the very presence of God Almighty. Um, last Sunday, uh, Brother Trout and I were privileged to meet your pastor's mother, and there's the picture of her and the president, and, and she mentioned how, you know, you don't get to do that every day, uh, meet the president of your country. And yet we can go to the presence of God Almighty, not just daily, but moment by moment. That is a great privilege, one that we should never take for granted or lightly, that we can go to the very God of, of the universe, the God of all, and bring our needs and our requests and our praises and, and our joy and our sorrow and, and that of others as well. What a privilege. Uh, such a privilege because God calls us to do it. Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. He wants us to come to his presence. What a privilege. But it's not just a privilege, it's also a duty. It is a requirement. We are commanded to pray without ceasing. Much of the scripture that speaks about prayer, especially in the Old Testament, is grammatically phrased in such a way that it is a command. It is not an option. If you read in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you know, Jesus in chapter 6, he talks about, uh, he says, when ye fast, not if ye fast, but when ye fast. Jesus assumes that we're fasting and we're praying. He doesn't recommend it. He doesn't suggest it. He commands it and he expects it. Prayer is both a privilege and a duty. How precious that ought to be to us. Well, in this passage here in Genesis chapter 19, uh, Abraham is praying and we'd been back home. I'd been teaching through, for lack of a better way to explain it, the history of prayer in the Bible. So we started in Genesis. I didn't get very far all year long. I don't think I got past Abraham. There was so much about prayer just in the very first few chapters of God's Word. Um, but there's a prayer here. Why do I say that? Because there's dialogue going on. In verse 27, And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. Abraham gets up to pray. He gets up to see what was the answer to his prayer before. Because in chapter 18 is when he and the Lord are talking one-on-one -on -one and God says, will I hide from Abraham this thing that I'm going to do? And he tells him about Sodom and Gomorrah and you might remember there's, the, there's kind of a dialogue goes on there. And the Lord says, I'm going to you know, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. It's wicked. It's come before me and I'm going to destroy it because it's so wicked. And what does Abraham do? He begins to sort of plead for his family, or so we would presume, since Lot and his family are in Sodom and Gomorrah. Will you destroy it if there's 50 righteous? No, I won't if there's 50. Well, what about 45? Well, what about 40? Well, what about 30? Well, what about 20? Well, what about 10? On and on, and he pleads with God. And... Uh, we might not think about that as prayer, but he's talking to God. And what is prayer other than talking to God in such a simple state? We're asking God to come to our aid. In his case, he got to talk to God face to face. And he pleads for his family. You know, assuming Lot and his wife and his two daughters that are unmarried and there were married daughters and their husbands, etc. That he probably had ten family members in Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says, if there are ten, and Abraham stops, and probably I would presume that he stopped, because that would be the extent of Lot's family. Certainly, Lot has reached his family. If no one else in that hard, wicked town responded to the truth of Jehovah and what Lot had been taught while he was in the family of Abraham, because God had just said that you know, Abraham's righteous and he'll raise his family and all these things. Certainly then Lot was exposed to that same teaching, the, at least what Abraham did know had been passed on. Certainly Lot had reached his family, at least his family. 
So the morning comes, and he gets up, and he goes to his place of prayer, and he looks out across the plain, and what does he see but smoke rising? Smoke rising. As I read that passage and was preparing to continue in our discussion and teaching about prayer on Wednesday nights, the Lord just sort of arrested me with three questions. So, uh, this is not necessarily an exegetical message tonight, but something the Lord arrested me with as I thought about Abraham and his time with the Lord. Abraham prayed. And so I asked myself a question, do I pray? Do I, pr- do I pray? Now, you might think that's a silly question for a preacher of the gospel. Do you pray? <laughs> uh, well, certainly I pray for my meals and I have, you know. But when I was asking myself, do I really pray? I mean, not just go through the motions of prayer and pulling out the prayer list from our congregation and working down the list of this person and that person like it's a grocery list, a shopping list, and uh, mechanical and But do I have such a dialogue with God that I plead for my family and he answers me? Because in chapter 18, he's pleading for a city and God is answering him. God is giving him a guarantee. If there are 50, I will spare the whole city. If there are 45, all the way down, if there are 10, if Lot has reached his family, I will spare the city. God was answering There was a a back and forth dialogue between Abraham and God. Do I pray? I wrote off to the side in my notes, well, why should I pray? Well, I certainly ought to pray because I'm a disciple and disciples pray. I mean, chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount is filled with things about prayer. Um, I mean, we have that passage that sometimes is called the Lord's Prayer, which is really the disciples' prayer. You know, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Uh, Great things are taught there in prayer. And just before that, in the the first couple of verses of chapter 6, we're told we're not supposed to pray like the hypocrites. We're not supposed to pray like the heathen. We're not supposed to be like those. We're not supposed to be just counting our prayers like, like some sort of rosary or prayer beads. There's supposed to be a dialogue. And while prayer is kind of a private thing, there in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, you, you, pray, you pray to your Father in secret, and he'll answer you publicly. Now, he doesn't use, he says openly, so that the answers to your prayer are visible to others. I don't have to be like the, you know, remember the story of the Pharisee beating his chest? I thank you, God, I'm not like other men, la, 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 and all those things he says. And right across the corner is the, is, is, is the publican who's got his head bowed and he says, I'm not worthy. Be merciful to me. Um, we don't have to do things publicly for a show. That's the hypocrites. Nor do we do it like the heathen counting our prayer beads. Instead, we are to pray like the holy because we have a personal relationship with God. It's our Father Not some great and mighty God up in the sky that we don't know, but it's our Father. That's a personal relationship. Personal. Um, So I ought to pray because I'm a disciple of Christ and disciples pray. Disciples of Christ in that I'm a disciple, not the denomination disciples of Christ. Um, I don't know if you have those over here in Ireland or not, but in America there's a whole denomination of churches called the disciples of Christ and they're... They're liberal and they're not good. But anyways, I pray because I'm trusting in Christ. He is my Savior. He is my Master. In fact, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 35 says, you know, it's enough if a disciple is as his Master. Well, if disciples pray, well, let me look at my Master. My Master is Christ. Jesus prayed. He prayed often. And he was God in the flesh. And he needed to pray. He needed a relationship. He needed a dialogue with with the Heavenly Father. How much more do I then need a dialogue with the Heavenly Father? I am not sinless. I am sinful. I have a sinful nature. My heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. And I need God to help me. 
I need his wisdom, his strength, his guidance, his direction. I need that. Disciples pray because there's struggles within because of our wicked nature and there's struggles without because of the wicked world in which we live. Whether it's here in Ireland or it's back in America or it's in Burma or it's anywhere else in the world. Man is wicked and there are struggles without. And we need God to superintend in those things and to help us and to give us favor. And we want the gospel message that we share to be effective and to have an impact, that souls would be saved and lives would be changed for the glory of God. Uh, Well, we have an enemy who's against all that. We need to pray. We need to pray. We need to pray. So do I pray. Psalm 3 and verse 4 says, I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill, Selah. Do I pray? Really? Do I pray? Or do I just sort of check the box? Yep, I got that done today. I read my chapter, or two chapters, or three chapters, or whatever it is, like it's uh, some sort of a, you know, doing my duty. And I read down my shopping list of prayer requests. And now I go about my business. We need God to help us every single day. Every Every portion of our life. It's not something just for Wednesday night. You know, if you make the application to yourself, you might think, well, that's silly. This is Wednesday. This is prayer meeting night. And you're asking us, do we pray? We're here to pray. It's prayer meeting night. As a little boy who got saved at four years old, I've been in church all my life, or most of it. Been in a lot of Wednesday night prayer meetings and said prayers but wasn't really praying. Just saying words. Saying words. Because if you're really praying and you're having a dialogue with God, then He's answering you. He's answering you. That's the big marker, really, of whether we're walking with the Lord or not. Are your prayers answered? The Bible is replete with promises that God answers prayer. He answers prayer. Now, I don't know your experience, but I know mine growing up and hearing sermons about prayer. Sometimes we were told, well, sometimes God says yes, and sometimes God says no, and sometimes God says maybe or wait a while. And I hope I'm not sticking my foot in my mouth. I just don't find that in God's word. I don't find that in God's word. God's promises are if we pray, he will answer. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. John 14, 15, and 16. If you look in those three chapters, three, four maybe, I forget, lost count now, maybe even five times, Jesus says a prayer, a, a, a promise Almost just like that. That if you're abiding, you can ask. And whatever it is that you ask, I'll do it. Now that's a promise. My heart's so deceitful and wicked, I find ways to rationalize why, when I pray, it seems like the sky is a tinkling symbol up above and nothing happens. Oh, the Lord's just telling me no. Well, (laughs) that's not what the Bible says. Well, he's just telling me to wait a while or whatever. But that's not what the Bible says. Do I pray, really? J.C. Ryle, a bishop of years ago who was amazingly a rather evangelical man, (laughs) shared the gospel, wrote a little booklet about prayer entitled A Call to Prayer. And in this booklet, he's writing to church-going people, though maybe not of our flavor or brand, if you will. Uh, but ask them that question, do you pray? Because that's the mark of your walk with God. Do you pray? So as I, as I read this passage and was planning to teach and preach about it, the Lord arrested me with that thought. Here I am, I'm reading about Abraham. He goes out in the morning, and he, he looks towards Sodom and Gomorrah. What is it? It's just smoke, it says. Verse 28. 
The smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. He prayed. And he went out expecting to get an answer from God, expecting that there would not be smoke. And it's not that God has failed to answer his prayer. God did answer his prayer. He said, I will spare. The one who let him down was Lot. Lot, who didn't reach his family. Didn't reach his wife. Didn't reach his married daughters, his sons-in-laws. He didn't even reach his his unmarried daughters because of the wickedness that they did afterward does not speak of someone who walks with God. He lost his whole family. What a disappointment that must have been to Abraham. Do I pray? The second question that came to me was, do I pray consistently? There have been times in my life when when I cried out to God and I knew that God had heard me. But is that consistent? Is that how it is all the time? Or is that just the exception that I pray and I know that God hears me? At one point, there was a great struggle with my, uh, when my children were little and we were struggling, my wife and I, financially. And I went to the Lord in prayer and just cried out. And, and God delivered in a great and mighty way. Another time early in my ministry, there was some struggles in the first church that I pastored, and I was on my way to a uh, kind of a gathering of preachers to just encourage one another, and was driving downtown Chicago, Illinois, and just it was about all oh, the wee hours of the morning, one, two o'clock in the morning. I was driving to get there, and was just so discouraged. I couldn't even verbalize my prayers. They just came out with sobs, tears flowing down my cheeks, so discouraged. And it was, it was as if the Lord came to me. I don't know how to explain it other than it was like I heard a voice, but I don't think I heard a voice, but it was so tangible. It was like the Lord said, Walt, it's all right. I love you. And all the tension just sort of seeped away and was gone. Times... But as I'm reading here in Abraham, I'm thinking, Abraham talked to the Lord the day before, it becomes the next day, and he needs to have a time with God again. And he goes to the very same place. There was a consistency in this dialogue that Abraham carried on with God. Whether the Lord was there physically or not, he went back to the same place. Is my prayer life consistent? Is there consistency? Daniel, when he heard the, you know, the, the proclamation of the king, it says that he went and prayed like he, three times a day like he had a four time. Nothing had changed. Whatever it is that the, you know, the civil government was doing there in, in Daniel's time, that had nothing to do with his time with God. His time with God, his walk with God, took precedent over any, any statute that man may pass or impose. Much like you might remember in the book of Acts, where the disciples say we ought to obey God rather than man. And here's a law that says you're not supposed to pray. But Daniel doesn't go, he doesn't go pray in a closet. He doesn't do anything different. This is how, what I've done all of my life. From a young man. No wonder Daniel was, you know, we, we, there's nothing negative about Daniel. Many of the saints of God, we hear some, the good and the bad in their life. Here we're looking at Abraham in Genesis and there are some very bad things that Abraham did. Some failures in his life. Uh, in Daniel's life, there's no record of any failures. As a young man, all the way to the, to the twilight of his life, when he goes like he's always done, to the window. And that's just what his enemies planned because they knew they would get him at that because he had character, he had consistency, he had a testimony. There was an expectation that we'll catch him and we'll beat him because of his holiness. I don't even have this written down, but the thought just, just gets to me how often the world traps us not in our holiness, but traps us in our sinfulness. The devil lays a trap and he knows that he'll catch us not because we're too holy, but because we're still sinful. And we're not, we're not holy like we ought to be. We're not separated like we should be. Well, that's a whole other thought you can kind of dwell on and meditate. Three times a day, just like I did a four time. 
Uh, Psalm 5 and verse 3. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. 55 and verse 17. Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud. And he shall hear my voice. I wonder if maybe that's where Daniel got the idea. I need to pray three times a day. Three times a day I need to get alone with God and seek his face. And we could go on and read several other places about prayer. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1 and verse 35, it says, And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he, meaning Jesus, went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. Three times a day. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, we read about them praying in the third hour. Chapter 3, we read about those Christians reading in the, praying in the ninth hour. In chapter 10, we read about them praying in the sixth hour, three times a day. They kind of maintained that precedent. That wouldn't be bad for me to do. That wouldn't be bad for you to do. To set aside time every day, three times. That, that would not be a bad idea. That would be good. Instead of just having my prayer time in the morning or wherever, whenever it is that you have your time alone with God. But to realize I need him, I need him all throughout the day. All throughout the day, God, I need, I need you to help me. I was working in a factory. I was an assistant pastor and it was a very small congregation and the pastor was a very elderly man and there wasn't a lot of money and so I went to help him and, and I had to work in this factory to support my family. And uh, they made garden implements and things that you would use in your to take care of your lawn and your garden and so forth. And the portion of the factory where I worked, uh, we had these metal pieces that had been formed in these big press machines, and we had to hang them on these hooks that would travel down this sort of chainway and go into be treated and cleaned and painted so they could be assembled into the various products. And all these pieces of metal, the sheet metal, was covered in fish oil. So it's very slippery. And they gave you these gloves so you wouldn't cut yourself, except these gloves were slippery plastic gloves. Slippery plastic gloves, slippery sheets of metal covered in oil, that's not a good combination. It's difficult. And the, and, and the hooks are moving. It's like a conveyor belt, constantly going. And you have to catch the hooks and hang and catch and hang and catch and hang and... It was terrible. I was, I mean, you're supposed to hang, not miss any hooks. I was missing, you know. I'd get one, six hooks would go by, and I'm like running down, trying to catch the hook, coming back, getting another one. Oh, no, I missed again. It's like, oh, this is terrible. I'm going to get fired. I'm going to lose my job because I'm missing hooks, which productivity is going down. And all, you know, the buzzer rang. It was time for a coffee break. And I just sat down. I didn't go to the break room. And I said, Lord, you have to help me. I can't do this. It's not that they were too heavy. It's just something isn't working here. I need you to help me. I mean, I need this job to support my family. I look like an idiot because I can't hang a simple piece of metal on a hook. What kind of testimony is that? I have no credibility to share the gospel with my coworkers. God, you have to, have to help me. And he did. The buzzer rang. We went back to work. I never missed another hook. Nothing changed. I didn't get stronger. I didn't get more coordinated. Nothing happened to me physically. But God just superintended and gave, gave favor so that it would work. So that now, new guys would come and I taught them how to do it. <laughs> right. I could share the gospel because now, oh yeah, that guy, he, look at, look at, see, how, see how good he does it over there? You need to work like him. Well, that wasn't me. That was the Lord. The Lord somehow just enabled me physically to do a job that really was very simple, but it was difficult so that it would open an opportunity so that I could share the gospel with my coworker. See, we need the Lord all the time. I don't need to just pray in the morning before I go to work. I need to pray while I'm at work. Because there are co-workers there that need the gospel, and that's your mission field. You don't have to go across the ocean. You don't have to go to, to some other country. There's people right in your workplace 
that are going to die and go to hell if they don't get the gospel. And when the Lord gives us favor to enable us to do our what we think is a secular, non, you know, a portion of our life that has nothing to do with God of the Bible, and yet it has, it has lots to do with... You spend most of your time not in this church. Most of your time is spent at your job with your families out there. And we need to hear from God when we gather. That's why we gather. We want to hear from the Lord. But we need to hear from God when we go out. We need his favor with those people because those are the ones we're trying to reach. We need to pray. And we need to pray consistently. Consistently. So that it's the same. I have a time when I go and I meet with God. And then throughout the day, I have to stop and you know, reconnect. How many times do we get a text message on our phone or we call someone or we were coming back today. We went down to the city to kind of just walk around and see some things. And both... Going and coming as we're riding on the the Lewis, the tram, the train, whatever you call that. We're riding there and I'm watching the people. I don't know how many people had their phone out. Checking their emails, sending their text messages or talking. Or we do that all day long with others. We certainly ought to do that with God Almighty. We don't even need an iPhone to do it. And we never lose connection. Never. Last night your pastor called and invited me to preach and all of a sudden just my phone just went done, lost connection. I thought, oh, that was weird. So I tried dialing back. I mean, it's a brand new phone. I, seriously, it's an iPhone 5 and I got it on the very day that they were, you, I didn't even know it was the day. I went to get, I had to upgrade my phone. I said, well, oh yeah, it's got to be global. And I said this. Or he said, well, you should get an iPhone fine. I didn't, it didn't even dawn on me. That's the day everybody's there to get the new gadget. I didn't even want all the bells and whistles. So it's a brand new phone. Like, this thing is not working. I, read, I, I dialed them 15 times. It just wouldn't work. That never happens when I talk to God. He never drops a call. I never lose service. And if I would text my wife or my, my daughters or friends or email, certainly I ought to maintain contact with the Lord. Do I pray consistently? Not just when the pressure's on. Not just when I have a great need. Not just when the 49th hook is going by and I've missed it again. But do I pray when the sun is shining? Do I consistently look to the Lord and say, Lord, not coming to help me, but just coming to say thank you for all the blessings of this day, the safety in our travels, consistently. Do I pray? And then do I pray consistently? Lastly, the Lord sort of struck me with one other thought as I considered Abraham and the fact that he came before the Lord the next day, the same place where he stood before the Lord. And that is, do I pray humbly? Humbly. Now, you know, prayer itself, even when we're crying out for help, prayer is an act of dependence because it's recognition that there's someone greater than me and he has what I need. That is an act of dependence. That is a step of faith that we would cry to God. Um, so in a sense that is humbly and yet what struck me was it, it says here and I, I don't want to take it out of context but it says and Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord and what struck me is that he went to be before the Lord's face not asking God to come and be before my face but recognizing the movement is not on his part to come to me. It's on my part to go to him. He is the one that I must bend to. He is the one that I must bow to. He is the one that I must, I must plead with. God's not running around trying to catch us, so to speak. Um, let me illustrate that um, through the idea of missions. I hope you don't think badly of me. Um, in America, at least, uh, 
a pastor gets called by missionaries all the time. All the time. You know, I getting phone calls almost, almost daily at the church. A missionary will call because he wants to come and present his work and get to where it is that he needs to go. And that's how, you know, whether the system is good, bad, or indifferent, that's how it works. And um, if I'm not there, the secretary takes a message, and almost always he leaves his phone number and says, please call or call me back. I confess, I almost never call back. Because I'm not chasing missionaries down. And I don't mean that in a, in a proudful way or in a dismissive way. It's just, he's looking to go to the field. If he's hungry enough to go to the field, he'll call me back. Because he wants to come here and present his work. He wants to show his ministry and what God's laying on his heart. And trusting that God would burden the congregation of my church and we would partner with him. So, if I went chasing all the missionaries... I would never preach in my pulpit. Because it would always be a missionary. <laughs> There's that many of them coming through. Now, I, I use that just to illustrate that the Lord shouldn't have to go chasing us down to get us to talk to Him. We should be humbly recognizing, I must come to the face of God. I must come to Him. Not wait for him to kind of chase me down. I need him. And if I need him, I should be going to him. Now, that being said, I don't want to dismiss how gracious God is that sometimes he will come chase us down. That's how gracious a God we have. And yet, when I, when I mention about praying humbly, it's coming to the recognition that, that I'm coming to the God of the universe, the God of all grace and the God of all comfort. And I should not come with some sort of flippant, arrogant, kick the doors open, spoiled child kind of attitude. God, you have to do this because I'm your child. He is God. Who am I to tell him what to do? I must come humbly. I must come before his face. Now, I can come boldly, but boldly and humbly are not synonymous. They're not the same thing. Boldly means I can come with confidence because of what Jesus did for me. See, Jesus opened the door. He unlocked the door to the throne room, if you will, so that I don't have to to be worried or afraid. Am I qualified to come? I am qualified to come. Therefore, I can come with confidence. But that confidence doesn't mean that I come arrogantly. I come humbly. I spent uh, nine years active duty in the United States Navy. On board the naval, a Navy ship, I would imagine other uh, naval ships as well, uh, the captain has his cabin. And very few times I would have to go see the captain for something. And when you went up to the captain's stateroom, the door would always be shut, and little signs as knock first, then enter, um, but there was a little thing on the side of the door, a little red light or a little green light, kind of like the color of buoys when you come into the harbor. Um, if the red light was on, don't even knock. Not to be disturbed, to be left alone. But if the green light was on, I could boldly knock on that door. Because he was giving me permission to knock. Not necessarily permission to get in, but permission to knock. And then he'd say, come in, or however the captain would respond. Do you realize we have a green light to the throne room of heaven always? It's never red. Because of Jesus. So I can come to that door boldly, confidently. But when I, when I went into the captain's cabin, I never said, Hey, captain, how's it going? I would step in, stand at attention. Excuse me, sir. I have this request or whatever. Whatever the, the reason was I was in his... I spoke to him with great respect because he was the captain. And a captain of a naval vessel has great authority over 
the members of his crew when you're out to sea. So there was a way in which I, I talked to the cabin respectfully. Now, I, I was there boldly. I had permission to come to him. I was supposed to be there. That was my job. It, was, it, was, it needed the captain's attention. And he gave permission to knock so that I could enter. But he did not give permission for me to be disrespectful and demanding. I still had to be respectful and humble. I'm in the presence of the captain. And that may not be the best of illustrations of what it means to come humbly before the Lord, but I should come recognizing He is my Heavenly Father. I cannot be a spoiled child and demand Him, you ought to do this because I've been good enough or I'm holy enough or I'm separate enough and so you have to do this for me, God. No, He doesn't. Because He's God and He knows best. He knows. I don't. So do I come to Him humbly? Boldly, yes, but humbly. You know, if I know the Lord's will, 1 John chapter 5 says, if we know his will, then we know that he will give us what we ask. And so, if you can't come boldly with confidence that the prayer will be answered, or if I can, perhaps I should reevaluate what I'm asking him. And I'm not asking to consume it upon my lusts. I'm not asking outside of his will. I'm, I am asking. James says you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss. So I want to make sure that I'm in the will of God. I'm asking correctly. And according to 1 John 5, if I know his will, I can come boldly with confidence because Jesus has opened the door, but also boldly with confidence that he will answer the request that I give. And he will always do it. When I would go to the captain with a request, because I was the supply petty officer, and we needed to purchase something to, in our job, and I did chemistry and stuff on board the ship, and we would have to buy certain chemicals and, and even if the ship was, at least on paper, didn't have any money because we'd spent everything allocated to our particular ship, uh, I knew that if I came to a request to buy more chemicals, it would always be a yes because it was required to do the job. The ship can't sail without these certain tests and so forth. You know, when I know God's will, I can always come confidently. Always. And he will always answer. Always. Three simple thoughts. Do I pray? Do I pray consistently? And do I pray humbly? I confess I don't know that that's always true in my life. It should be. And it is my desire that it would be. And so if you can't give testimony that I prayed for this and God answered this, I asked God for this thing and God gave me that thing. That's a testimony that our God is concerned about us. When you start telling your unsaved friends and neighbors and family members and co-workers, God answers my prayer. Wow, that's powerful. That's powerful. And when they know that he's a real God and he really hears and he really answers, you have, you have some firm ground when you begin to share the gospel. If we try to share the gospel and they say, well, what has God done for you? And you, then there's nothing you can say. Nothing, nothing. And I'm not dismissing our, our salvation testimonies. For an unsafe person, that's kind of abstract. How do I get my, hand, my, my mind around something so abstract as this great and mighty God who's cleansed your soul from sin with the blood of Jesus? It's just like, how does that work? You mean you didn't get sprinkled? You didn't get bonked on the head? You didn't, you know, you didn't have to do this, that, and the other? That's difficult. But when you say, I have a God that 
I asked the Lord to heal my little boy, and God did. Or I asked the Lord to provide a job, and look what he did. See, I have a God who's real. He's not imaginary. He's not just on paper. He's not a concept. He's a person. And I can talk to him, and he answers me. Yes, in the abstract, but also in these very clear, definite things. That ought to be a consistent, obvious testimony that we have. That we talk to God, and he hears, and he answers. Do we pray? Do we pray consistently? Do we pray humbly? Father, I thank you so much for your love and grace. What a great and mighty and gracious God that you would let us even come to your presence. Let alone that we could come so boldly as your own children. And you would, you would promise to hear us and answer our prayers as we come in your will, as we come not seeking to just satisfy our own desires, but concern for you and your glory and your honor and your son. You promise to hear us and to answer us. Father, I pray and ask you might work in our hearts. May we be tender and sensitive in desire. Such a conversation with you. That we may pray in our closets. And yet you openly, in the eyes of all, you answer our prayers. Would you work, please, I pray, in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor. Let's all stand, please. Has God dealt with you tonight? It's always important that you respond when God deals with you. I mean, do you pray? Do you really pray? Do you pray consistently? Do you pray humbly? Has God dealt with you? Do you, do you pray expecting God to answer? Wasn't that neat the way Abraham came out to see what had happened? Because he was expecting an answer. You know, Elijah did too. Elijah prayed for rain and then he came out to see because he was expecting an answer. Do you pray that way? That's if every head bowed and every eye closed. Father in heaven, we do thank you, Lord, for your word to us. Thank you, Lord, for our preacher tonight. And we do ask you that you would bless now, that you would move in hearts. Now, blessed Spirit of the living God, would you move, Lord, and would you cause us to make decisions where they need to be made? And Lord, would you just uh, take your people and draw us into a deeper, sweeter place of prayer with you? And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. As the piano plays and God has dealt with you, why don't you come and do business with him and just make a commitment as far as prayer is concerned. As the piano plays, you just step out of your seat and you come.